0: It's awesome. Lord Jesus, thank you for how you have prepared Peter to share with us today through his life, through the things he's been reading, what he's been observing. I ask for uh, peace to continue to be upon him as he shares today. I pray that you would... Um, bring clarity to his uh, thoughts, to what he's prepared, and that for each one of us that we would find freedom through your word and through this wisdom. And I ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Matthew 5, uh, it's actually 27 through 30. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow. Uh, These are hard words, I would say. Um, Is Jesus really asking us to injure ourselves? I mean, that... uh, I don't think so. Um, But he may be asking us to do something that is harder. Um, And unless we think that it's just sexual sin, um, in Matthew 18, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits that person who does the tempting? So, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. So Jesus is talking about pride and sin in general, and he uses almost the same words. Uh, Wow. Uh, It seems like sin is a really big deal. Um, And and so that's my starting point, is that Jesus is saying something, and it's a really big deal, but maybe we have to think a bit to understand what he's saying. And so uh, I have a couple thoughts. One, the church has historically not understood Jesus to be saying something about physically cutting off our hands or our eyes or our feet or anything like that. Like Christians have always understood Jesus to be using a figure of speech, but just because he's using a figure of speech doesn't mean that he's saying something that's less than important, like that we can just ignore that. It, maybe it means that he's saying something that's you know, even more incredible. Two, um, where where does sin live? I mean, Jesus sort of says that if your hand causes you to sin, but your hand doesn't really cause you to sin. Like, that's not how sin works. Um, Sin isn't actually in our body parts, um, as Jesus says elsewhere. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and goes into the sewer. But the words that you speak come from your heart. That's what defiles you. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. So sin is a matter of the heart. The third, so, so this physical stuff isn't the problem. Um, and then the third thought is that we're not the solution. Jesus paints a pretty scary picture of the seriousness of life and death, of heaven and hell. Of God's kingdom and life and death without God. And I think that that picture is really true. It really is that cataclysmic. Even in my own life, when I'm caught and trapped in the midst of my own broken, perverted, self-centered, self-consumed lust and sin and death, I feel like I'm in hell. And I feel like that there is no health, no life, nothing good, nothing but what deserves to be burned up in fire. And it seems to me um, that that stricter rules, harsher penalties, more aggressive self-help programs... Stronger, fatter, bast- uh, stronger, faster, better interventions, cutting off our own hands, our own feet, doing the extreme, like that doesn't actually work. It won't actually save you, it won't change who you are. In a perverse way, trying harder, being harsher on ourselves is just more of the problem, it's just more of ourselves. It's just more of our wills, of our, of our grit our teeth and be the greatest. I'm going to work so hard. I'm going to be the greatest. And that's going to make me like a little child. Like, like how does that work? <laughs> Ephesians 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of you can boast about it for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Uh, I think that's actually kind of strange. I, I don't think I ever really looked saw this before in, in this passage from Ephesians but we are... Saved not by ourselves, not from our works, not because of what we do, but we are created, recreated, renewed for good works. I, you know, I, I feel like sometimes if you try to explain that weirdness too hard, like you you explain it away, and then and then it's. You lose the point that there's this really weird thing going on where God saves you and takes you out of darkness and death and puts you in life. And, but you can't do that yourself, even though you try really hard and you cooperate with God. and uh, Yeah, so it's a little weird, but it's true. And, and that is the essence of our faith and the essence of what I'm going to say to you today. So if you don't remember anything else, you should remember that God saved you by his grace when you believed. We are saved not of ourselves, not because of what we do, but that we are created in Christ for good works. For we are God's masterpiece. Uh, So, what was Jesus saying? We can understand Jesus, I, I think, and maybe I'm way off base, as saying that if it would help, if your hand or your eye really were the problem, then yes, cutting it off would be the logical thing to do. But, and I think we all kind of know this, that's not really the problem. It's not our eyes, our ears, our hands. That's not really where sin lives. Sin lives in our hearts. So, So what do we do with our hearts? Well, we have them pruned. Um, I don't think that Jesus is exaggerating with this sort of harsh language and that gives us some kind of a free pass. I actually think that it's harder, that we have to cut right through our our eye, our ego, our desires, these little private parts of ourselves that we cling to deep in the middle of the night or those parts of the brain that think, oh, it's just in my head, it doesn't really matter. Jesus is saying that it matters. What you think, what you feel matters. God is not willing that some part of you should be unredeemed. So it is better for you to enter into deep, full, eternal, never-ending, never-stopping, ultimate, that for which you know you were made life, maimed or lamed, without a foot or a hand or an eye, having given up very dear things, having renewed your mind so that it is not conformed to this world, than it is to be trapped in self-centered, self-absorbed darkness and death, which will not stand the day of God's visitation, but will be burned up and shown for the nothingness which it is in the holy fire of God." So um, let's step back a second. and think about what I would want to call disordered desire. Um, this is a, a way to understand sin. Um, there are a variety of ways to understand sin, and if this is helpful for you, then take it. If it's not helpful for you, don't take it. I think it's behind some of what um, our, our the book series that we're going through talks about, um, but it's sort of in the background of a lot of what he, he's saying rather than up in the, the forefront. But Christians ha- have at various times thought about our moral life as trying to fit who we are and our desires into how, what how God has made us and how God has made the universe and the laws that he has given us. And so the problem isn't that we want things. It's that we want things in the wrong way. It's that our... Our desires get all jumbled and all mixed up, and um, let me illustrate from a realm of life that I'm about to enter into. Um, let's say you have two kids on a playdate, and one kid is playing with a green ball and the other is playing with a red ball. And Let's call the first kid Molly, and she decides that she's done playing with the green ball and she wants to play with the red ball. Now, There's nothing wrong with wanting to switch toys that you're playing with. I mean, that's just a part of what we do when we play. But, if there's this other kid who's playing with the red ball and it's not her her turn, that that's a disordered desire. She'll let that and it, you know I mean you can watch it happen, but it happens to all of us. Like it, this desire just wells up in us and it becomes the most important thing in the universe and it's like nothing else matters. And it's like there, that's a t- like hello. Did you have you not heard about any of the rest of life like? paying attention to your parents, and justice, and concern for your neighbor. And like, like it just doesn't, it's, this, it's all jumbled up. And it's, you know, and if we all acted that way, it would be chaos. Um, so, so I think that this helps me um, understand what Smith was talking about when he says that like, not all desire is bad, but not all, and he's specifically talking about sexual desire in the context of lust, that not all desire is bad, but not all desire is good. Um, that that you know, we want things, and we want, and that's part of what makes us human. Um, but our desires have to be rightly ordered. They have to fit into the, the way things are, are made you know, the way God has made the universe and the way God has made us and our relationships with other people. Otherwise, they get out of control and they destroy our lives and it's sin and death and hell. Um, So here's the good news, bad news. Um, Oh, I covered that point. Um, we, We don't always get what we want. And that's when it comes down to getting your heart cut open is that even if it's okay, even if the thing that we long for is a good thing, like longing to be married, or, you know, this applies to, to anything, um, we, we sometimes God doesn't give that to us. And it's okay. It's okay to want something and to not get it. Um... And that, as Wade will appreciate, is profoundly countercultural. Yeah. Uh, and not just countercultural to our contemporary sex-obsessed hedonist post-1960s, if-it-feels-good-do-it culture, but, but it's actually kind of countercultural to all human culture, like to the system of the world that, that the Bible talks about and that you know old-time Christians used to rail against, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, like, I mean... There is a, a way that sort of human interaction works, and, and a lot of that is based on people getting what they want and getting really upset when they don't get it. Um, and, and this not giving up, not getting what we want, this giving up what we want and we feel like we need, um, this doesn't make sense to our fallen nature. Um, but we, we serve a God who is bigger than our desires and who is deeper and grounds us in them. Um, and that's what, what fasting is about. That, that's what, I mean, he, he talks about a, uh, a particular kind of fasting that probably makes a lot of sense to a lot of us, um, but it's the same for any time we give up something. Um, it teaches us that going without something, that e- even if that thing is objectively good, um, that it, it won't kill us Um, it, it helps us see, as somebody who is reviewing um, an interesting book about how called Staying Faithful, How Our Sex Lives Matter to God. Um, like Christians throughout history who chose celibacy as a way to express their unfettered devotion to God, single Christians remind us that we don't need marriage or children to make our lives and bodies meaningful, uh, and that it is the service in the kingdom of heaven and not our service to our families or country that is the measure of a life well lived. So, so that's hard. Um, and I think that, that as we understand that we are saved by grace and not by getting everything right, that as we develop a picture of God um, as, that Smith painted in the, in the first book uh, of a caring, loving compassionate God that we develop the character to be able to give up the things that we really want and um, and that is not an easy thing, nor is it a thing that I have some kind of mastery over and that I'm, I'm preaching from a from a position of, of mastery but e. Um, I would also sort of, by way of um, not a very smooth segue, um, say that for, for my money, um, Smith kind of overgeneralizes, particularly when talking about the difference between men and women. Um, and I, I just will say that generalizations are always wrong, and that I don't even know if it's helpful that to, to be like, well, men lust one way and women lust another way. And um, you know, I've, I, I know that I've become emotionally infatuated with people and, and been obs- obsessed with them in profoundly unhealthy ways. Um, and I know that there are lots of women who struggle with pornography. And that, it, that you know, if that was ever true, like in you know, statements about the past or what, we, we don't really know what the past was like. Um, and so I just don't know if it's helpful. Um, I also don't always know if it's helpful to to try to decide in your brain, you know, oh, th- I had a thought, and, and was that a rightly ordered desire, or was that a wrongly ordered desire? Like, I think sometimes we can be, we can get trapped in this, like, I have to figure everything out and I have to like know exactly where the line is and what, you know, what's the exact moment at which I'm objectifying somebody else. And and I sort of in the same, you know, sense of like, well, what we're actually trying to do is cultivate our character and cultivate our character, so it, you know, generalizing about other people is maybe not the most helpful. Well, maybe I don't need to know specifically every last instance. Maybe I can just say, God, your your grace covers things and I, and I, you know, submit myself to you and I hope that your grace continues to renew my vision so that I don't objectify people, you know? And I'm, however much, you know, I was objectifying somebody there, well then, sorry about that. Like, Like, I'm not gonna you know, try to get all the details right all the time, because that's just not how people are. Um, So, uh, I felt like I should also include a little thought that um, sometimes when lust gets talked about, um, it gets talked about in ways that are really oppressive to women. Um, that, that say you know, men are consumed by this uncontrollable thing that they can't control and that women have to cover themselves up and that that will solve this problem. And it, it struck me recently that it's, it's not actually true. Like if you look at cultures around the world where women do cover themselves up because of massive social pressure It's still, you know, um, men being full of lust and being, you know, like harassing women is still a huge problem. Um, So that's what I have to say about that, that um, God will judge each, God will judge everyone according to what they have done, that we can't put other people in the category of like, well, if you had just been this way, if you had just not, you know, shown your ankles, then these people wouldn't have sinned. Like that's just not how it works. Um, I would say, Masti is also important. First um, Timothy two, in every pra- place of worship. I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or wear gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. That through our love and service and character, that is how we should project ourselves And and modesty is super cultural, like you know, clothing and it's not. There aren't universal guidelines handed down from the New Testament. Uh, I mean, and and the 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 other thing to think is, you know, Paul's not. This isn't Paul talking about it in a sexual context, Um, which is an interesting thing to be because so often modesty gets talked about in a the context of lust but it's like well actually this is about relationships potentially between women and you know about how social class or um, about what you know what, what what other people like how other people perceive us um, so that's that um, so kind of wrapping up um, I. So, so what do we do? I mean, I, I've sort of said, okay, so we have to have our hearts cut open, and we have to give up our, our desires sometimes. Uh, we have to, to lay them before God and, and have God sift them and see what he does with them. And... Um, and that, I think, is all is a, requires not just willpower, not just you know cutting off our hand, but it requires a complete change of who we are. Um, it requires um, a community and being in a community that doesn't. Promote lust that doesn't uh, objectify others, and that that calls us away from that. Um, I think it matters a lot as an individual, like what you know people in um, when they then they talk uh, about addiction, uh, which I feel like lust sort of moves into relatively easily. Um, but again, I would say generalizations are always wrong. Don't, like, I, sometimes, you know, I, I know for myself, I've, it's like, well, am I, like, is this an addiction or is this just a pro Like, like I, don't, I don't know if we have to sort everything out into these nice categories. Like, we're, we're people and um, life is messy and, and maybe you can't f- fit, you know, um, so, so that it, it's what you know, what's going to help you, you know? I mean, if God is calling you to not just give up Facebook for 48 hours or for a couple hours, but is calling you to give up Facebook, period, like that's what God's calling you to do. And you can't, I mean, you can argue with it, but it's not going to work, like, you know, and but that doesn't mean that you need to put that on somebody else. Um, uh, I would say that fasting can be a good place to start um, because <laughs> it shows us what our desires are like, and, and it gives us some experience of, of saying, "Okay, my the, I have this desire, and it's actually really hard to say no." And that's that's where I'm at, and and maybe I can think about how to how to manage that, how to how to how to put that before God? Well, did I? Right. So, so in terms of, uh, in terms of exactly what that looks as we. We submit ourselves to the discipleship of Jesus, and we experience transformation. Um, Colossians 2, you have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teaching about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they prove no help in conquering a person's evil desires. That Paul is saying, just adding more restrictions doesn't help. Just willpowering it harder isn't going to help us be people who see each other with love and purity, and not lust. Um, And finally, um, I almost feel like that speaks for itself. Um, I think, in my own experience, and, and I think it's probably pretty true for a lot of people, that this topic carries a deep, deep well of shame um, that and I, I don't even know, know why exactly. I mean, I could speculate about why this touches us so deeply and um, but I mean, it's serious. It's a serious topic. Jesus uses some pretty hard words when he's talking about it but My experience um, is that shame doesn't help. That it it actually just drives us more into um, darkness and death and using lust as a coping mechanism for feeling shame um, and getting stuck in a cycle, um, getting trapped in uh, what Jesus has, has come to set us free. Like Romans 8. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but who instead follow the Spirit. And I think that it's hard to really believe that and to receive that, particularly if you've been following Jesus for a while, and if you've understood that you're great, you know, that by grace you have been saved and that your sins are forgiven. And it, it's like, well, okay, so so, where's this new life? Um, it's still there. Like, I, I think that it's still it's still there. Um, and I, I don't know if I have a magic formula for how to get it. Like, I, I think that we um, we walk in the way that that Jesus has taught us, and we put away sinful things. And then when we fall, we get back up again. Um, A righteous man falls down seven times, and he gets back up. And part part of me wants to to try to make a really dramatic finish and be like, well, this is the one thing, and I'm going to preach at you until you get it. And, and you're really going to get it. And you're really going to be free because you're really going to experience God's freedom um, from shame from that, that puts us into this cycle. And you're really going to get it. And I don't think I can do that. Uh, I think that the Holy Spirit can do that. Um, so thank you. So, so I will, I'll go ahead and pray um, for, for the Holy Spirit to do that. Um, Lord, you know our hearts. You know the broken, shameful places, the places where we have not loved others as we should, where we have let our desires break out of any kind of bounds and run amok and destroy your beautiful, good creation. We ask you to free us from your shame. We ask you to bring your truth into our hearts, uh, so that these words are not words, uh, but are, are your word in us. Through Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, so that we might live in your kingdom. Uh, amen.
0: Thank you so much, Peter. I think as Peter was sharing, one thing that came to mind was there's been a bit of a theme as we've gone through the different chapters of, of the two books that we're going through so far. And um, as far as slowing down and also practicing gratitude, deliberately Trying to notice the things around us that we can be grateful for, and as Peter was talking, and I was just trying to examine my own heart and think, what is it? What is it that I'm longing after, or what is it that what am I idolizing? What is there anything? I think the times um, where that tends to happen more for me are seeing my own weaknesses. Um, interestingly enough, was what Karen prayed into in pre-service prayer, where that can come even for me, even in just comparing myself to somebody else and then feeling less than and, and longing after wanting to be somebody that I'm not. Or um, lately, as, as I've been hurt or injured and not able to do all the things that I would like to do, I realized how much I idolized being capable, and being in charge, and being a helper. And I actually felt like I was pretty good at asking for help. But I was good at asking for help for the first little while. And then I didn't really get better. And I had to keep asking for help. And sometimes I wouldn't ask for help to the point of physically injuring myself, because I just felt embarrassed that I had to come and ask Mark and Lynn for help again or I had to call the kids again or I had to do whatever. Um, But I think that as we come back to this this principle again of um, how do we not lust after or long after things that we don't have in our lives, that very simple principle of slowing down Trying to be present where we are and truly being grateful for what we have. And sometimes that is the hard work of being grateful for who we are. And that feels harder sometimes. I feel like it's easy to be grateful for all the people around me. I feel like it's easy to be grateful, well, I mean, not always, but often for my family. And sometimes my family frustrates me, just like everybody's family does. But I think. if I'm really honest, I think I have a pretty good self-esteem a lot of the time, but then if you, but then in the deep, dark places, if you had to say, you know, are you grateful for who you are? Those are the places where it's easy to know because I know my own sin. I know the depth of my own sin. But it is a comfort to journey together. It is a comfort to know each other. One of the great things about our family shares a duplex with another family from this church, for those who don't know me. And that's who I'm referring to when I say I to go help Mark and Lynn for help. And we've both said to each other that when we hear each other yell at our kids, we never think like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. We always think, oh, thank God I'm normal. Oh, thank God somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Mark said to me the other day, I like really lost it one day, and then was like, oh, I was really embarrassed that you heard me. He said, I just thought, you poor woman, what are those children doing to you now? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God, right? Because it's so easy for me to say, oh, I lost it again. I got so angry again. I tried so hard. And it's, I mean, parenting is, is a constant constantly about just humbling, humbling myself, apologizing to my kids over and over again. I'm so sorry. Mommy's still not perfect. So um, I think as we finish, unless there's anybody else of our leaders who have a sense of something else to share, um, my sense was for us to just take a minute and ask God to just speak to us about how totally crazy he is about us how really kind of impressed and thrilled he is with you. And that it's not that God is sitting here with a big list of everything that you've done wrong or all the lusts of your heart or all the desires of the things that you wish that you had that you don't have or the things that you wish that you were that you're not. But instead that we would have a revelation of the gift we are. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would somehow in our brokenness by your Holy Spirit help us to be grateful for ourselves today and that's often why we need each other that's why we need each other to be mirrors we, we see our own sin and we see our own brokenness so clearly I, I think it's not often that we need somebody else to hold that mirror up to show us just how broken we are But would you show us by the gift of your Holy Spirit today just how fantastic you've made each one of us to be? Your word says, for we are your masterpiece. Andy was sharing me a story of of some vineyard leaders visiting an artist's house lately, and when they walked into the house, all of these works of art were covered up with with um, drape cloth, and they had a, a very profound visit with this artist where he shared vision with them through music, through visuals, through all these different ways. And once they had a picture of who this artist really was, then he unveiled each one of those paintings. And Andy said, it was so profound. So Lord, I just pray that you would do that today with each one of us, that you would just take that veil off of our own eyes in the way that we see ourselves. Help us to see us the way that you see us.
2: I think, too, for some of you, it might be difficult to do that because you don't know what to do with all the stuff that's wrong that clutters your head all the time. Um, So I would like to present in addition to that picture of just, that's what the cross is for. That you get to actually come, Now we don't actually have a physical place. You might have to do it in your imagination. (laughs) Do you feel like you need to go there and just have a place to physically lay down the stuff that you don't want to carry around anymore? That The awesome trade that happens when you get to do that and just being able to say, okay, this is all the stuff I see about me, here. And then he takes it and he shows you how he sees you. And that's the beautiful trade. You don't have to carry it around. There's a place to go and it's the cross. That's what it is for. It's the place of trade. It's not a fair trade, (laughs) but it's a free gift that's given to us. That part's hard. I've been in that place where you're like so aware of what you have that you don't want anymore, but the idea of actually getting up and doing something about it, that's hard. So if it's easier for you to do it in your imagination, then do that. But if you feel like you're desperate enough or that that's an offer as well just to be able to go do a trade in a physical place, um, do that too. So I think um,
0: there's just a lovely sense of quiet of people processing lots of stuff right now. Um, it is time for those of us who have kids in kids' church to um, go and get our kids, to bless our kids' church workers. So I think um, at this point in time, I just invite you to um, uh, stay in a quiet place. If you feel comfortable, and this is something that you want to talk about with somebody else, Anybody can pray for anyone in our church. You don't have to come up to the altar. You don't have to come up for prayer. But if that's something that feels helpful for you today that's available, you can come and get prayer from one of our leaders. Or you can come, as Karen said, up and just spend some time praying. Kenny actually recently just rearranged things so that that way you can either kneel at the rail here or there's a couple of kneelers that used to be used by... Um, the priests in the Anglican Church, and we've just turned them so that that way if you want to kneel at them and reflect on the cross or just have that as a focal point, you're really welcome to do that too. So um, just, uh, I think even standing might feel disruptive, so why don't we just present ourselves in a place where you can receive a blessing, whether that's bowing your head or opening your hands or whatever that looks like for you. And I just invite you, it's such a beautiful day. We have our gorgeous garden outside. I was saying a glen to Gloria this morning. We were out in the garden picking flowers for the altar. I said, I can't believe that a year ago we didn't know where our church was going to be. And now we're standing in this garden surrounded by these fruits and vegetables and flowers and all this beauty. So I just invite you, if you want to chat, just go hang out outside. Go hang out on the deck. Go hang out in the garden. But let's just make this a quiet space here. And... Um, uh, And we'll just maybe get Dean to put on a little bit of quiet music. Um, I do want to ask that a few people who are in relationship with Peter would pray for him today, not only covering, because sometimes it's vulnerable when you preach a sermon like this, but also just as he begins his internship, just praying a blessing over him. So we'll just get Peter to come hang out over here and get a couple of people to come pray for him. So let's just put ourselves in a position where um, we can receive a blessing from the Lord. God, you are good, and you are gentle and humble in heart, and you invite us that when we come to you, we will find rest for our souls, and you invite us to take your yoke upon us because it fits well, it's easy, and it's light. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to come to you today with any burdens that we came in here with, that you would help us to do that trade of putting them before you, that we would find solace in your Holy Spirit in these words we've heard today, in the company of being together. Um, As we pray for one another now, as we um, invite your Holy Spirit to continue to minister as she's done all the way along through this service, and as we go now into our week, We ask your blessing upon each one of us, each member of our family, that we would delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. So I bless you all to go in peace, to love and serve the Lord, that your week would be filled with joy, and that you would sense God's pleasure in you as his masterpiece. And I bless you to go in peace in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.